Welcome to this Interdisciplinary Life podcast, where interdisciplinary study students discuss works, ideas, and concepts as they pertain to our non-traditional degree. Hello, I'm your host, Brianne, and in this segment, I'm joined by Courtney, Carol, Kasia, and William, and together we'll be discussing chapters 5 through 8 of Chris Gillibaugh's book, The Art of Nonconformity. More specifically, some of my classmates will provide you with a summary and a main point of each chapter, and myself, Courtney, or William will offer a challenge or two to some of what the author has said in those chapters, and then we'll wrap it up with my connecting what we've read within the work to what we're doing in our interdisciplinary studies right now. Courtney starts us off with Chapter 5. Chapter 5 of The Art of Nonconformity, named Competence is Your Security, addresses the consequences of allowing yourself to not take responsibility for your actions. That there's a level of risk, yes, but the risk is worth taking when you can change your way of approaching events in your life and redefine what you call a job instead of allowing someone else to have that security in their hands. It is acknowledged that entrepreneurship isn't for everyone and that with time, entrepreneurship is not a feasible option for many people and their particular career paths but is an encouragement to escape the mundane and find some place to escape to. Chapter 5's main point is that with many things in life, there will always be risk and consequences for your actions, but we should hold ourselves more accountable than we already do. If we are so willing to place our faith in our employers, who can let us go at any moment, then it's feasible for us as the everyday folk to change our circumstances for our own behalf take initiative for our security. Thank you, Courtney. I will admit, I have many challenges to pose the author and many times where I'm not fully on board with the advice that he imparts. But I do think that this chapter holds what might be the most valuable kernel of wisdom, which is that if one's desire is to embrace nonconformity, but still succeed and be successful, then one must be willing and able to rely on oneself to have confidence and to feel competent in their ability to either create aside from or on top of what they do in their established career or out on their own. And one must be willing to take responsibility for all aspects of what that new venture might entail. I absolutely agree. I think that's really valuable information. But where I challenge Guillebeau is in his reliance on anecdotes as proof that his success can also be yours. And it's in the absence of real tools that one can implement when failure strikes. Because, I mean, we all know failure strikes, right? And it usually strikes out when you don't have a ready-made infrastructure, like when you start your own business. So specifically in this chapter, Gillibo speaks of some near collapse of his overseas venture in the States while he is in Africa doing volunteer work. And so it's eventually saved by the help of his brother, who's back in the States, who's able to do the legwork in his absence. And I would argue that had he failed and had this hindsight list of things that he could have done um, or could have tried, or maybe if he had failed but then succeeded and had to work a little harder than calling up his brother and that just worked out, you know, made a couple phone calls and from across overseas, it all went swimmingly, I think I would be more ready to take his advice. But as it stands, I feel like he fails in that he doesn't convey tools, just a story that tells me how he succeeded. I think that more information and more um, solid structure to follow would be more valuable to the reader in this chapter. 
Carol, you were excited to take on both chapter six and seven. What did you uncover there? All right, so to summarize chapter six, the author gives us a little story about his time in graduate school and how he believes that honestly it was just a waste of time and money for him compared to just going out and doing independent learning. He found that sometimes um, an alternative to graduate school is independent learning and going out and doing something in the real world instead of just going to class and doing the, the basic cookie cutter program that we're taught as we're young. So the author says that pretty much since we're investing large amounts of time and money into something, that we should really think carefully about what we're doing and what we're going to get out of it beforehand. He also has the belief that we shouldn't use graduate school or any other course of study as a form of life avoidance, and that we should pursue the course only if there is a good reason, and that sometimes you have to go out into the real world and figure out what you're going to do through that way instead of just going through books and learning through school courses that might never help you. So pretty much the key point for this chapter is that you should not invest all your money or time into graduate school without thinking about independent learning first. Do not invest your time into graduate school if you do not have a clear idea of why you're enrolling into this. And do not use graduate school as a form of life avoidance and make sure you have a good reason why you want to pursue this course beforehand. So for chapter seven, this starts off with talking about how if you want to be a working artist, you'll need fans and patrons to support you. And that people will follow you because if they believe in your cause and because your work has to help them in some way. He talks about different groups of people that could be a part of your army. And those are followers, which are the largest part of the team. True fans who are hyper-responsive followers. Allies who are like-minded individuals who are actively waging campaigns of their own in similar fields. And then the last is friends of friends who represent your extended network. He gives us three important steps that are required to form a small army. Step one, recruit your small army. Step two, train and reward your army. And step three, ask your army for help. So the key point for this chapter is that you should make sure you pick the right people for your army and that they are willing to invest time into you and your idea. You need to be straight and direct with people when asking to join your army. You have three different types of people, which are followers, true fans, allies, and friends of friends. You should also make sure to set goals to have a certain number of people join your small army monthly. Thank you, Carol. I personally have all kinds of notes from reading chapters six and seven. I will try and be brief, but these are the ones that really hit home for me. So first up, his take on grad school and going that far with education in general versus, you know, bunking conformity, which is our industrialized capital and the degrees that we get in order to achieve success in our careers. He's saying, you know, you don't need to do that. Well, first, Gillibel flaunts fully enrolled college student status without his high school diploma, ignoring completely that this is the exception and not the rule. I mean, at the very least, you would have to get your GED. The fact that he was able to coast by and not have to finish his high school education before moving forward, not only through one, but multiple colleges, and then get into grad school without ever having finished high school. This is absolutely not realistic. So he's already based an entire book um, full of advice on something that, you know, I would imagine 99.99% of people could not achieve on that one thing alone. Um, he goes on to to boast 40 hours in a semester, 40 credit hours in college in one semester by attending those multiple colleges. And what he fails to mention 
and drive home in his book is that that takes a very specific type of person, a very, very unique type of character. And most people don't function successfully on that kind of workload, on wanting to do that many tasks at once to achieve something. And I think that him pointing it out kind of speaks to the kind of person that might do best in trying to bunk the system and go out on their own. But it just kind of mentions it like this cool thing he did and see he could do that. And instead, what it does is trivialize the challenge of academia. He makes it sound like, what, he took 40 credit hours and he could do that, no biggie. But I think what it really speaks to is the type of person that he is. And I think that that was really telling. And I challenge him to speak more to, it really takes a special person. This really isn't for everyone. And he does say, not everyone's going to be an entrepreneur. Not everyone's going to be, um, you know, successful in this this avenue. But he only says it once or twice because obviously the book would not be very successful otherwise. William, you also had a challenge that you wanted to pose to the author in this chapter about graduate school. What was that? My challenge is the author speaks in a peculiar circumstance in which he was allowed to obtain his bachelor's degrees without high school education. In this chapter, he also speaks to how graduate school didn't prepare him for his career goals and actually encourages students to explore all options prior to enrolling. In this special case, he was able to obtain his MA, but he felt that it didn't help much in his career. My challenge for that is that grad school has a lot of benefits for students seeking professional career in skill-based fields such as healthcare. I'd also go as far to say that graduate school could also provide career advancement in your place of employment. I do agree that graduate school can be a waste of a large portion of money depending on what your discipline is, but you'd also face the same risk in investing your time and money into a business. In fact, the majority of businesses fail within three years. Exactly, William. And I do think you make really valid points. For me, I think overall, what strikes me as the biggest challenge in that chapter is that, you know, we're trying to take advice and be inspired by someone who claims that grad school is unnecessary from a guy who had the privilege of experiencing and completing graduate school. In the following chapter, we hear a lot about gaining an army, having a following, the different levels of people that you will need supporting you so that you can be successful in your non-conforming venture. Um, I feel like a special case here because I am a 47-year-old woman who started my college degree in 1991 and I'm finishing my bachelor's degree now, all these years later, um, in 2021. So um I find myself a special case because I've been a part of the blogosphere pretty much exactly when this book was published a um, few years before then, right at the, the beginning of when blogs became a thing. Um, I was a vegan blogger. It was a way for me to catalog becoming a new vegan. It was fun. There was a community. I loved it. It helped me learn a lot of things. Um, and I had a community. And like Gillibo, you know, I had hundreds of uh, unique visitors every day. I had thousands of followers. People read my blog. There was a community. There was a lot of back and forth. It was absolutely all those things he said you needed to move forward. What I find interesting is that this book is about nonconformity. Um, but this army, this kind of gathering of people and then getting them to support you in these different levels in this way 
is not non-conformity. It is very much conforming to a model that works. It works in marketing. It works in commercialism and capitalism. It's just working through the internet and digital um, media and a new era of things. But I personally would argue that this is not non-conformity at all. And I argue that because for me, when it came to a point where I thought, wow, I could I could turn this into a business. I could do this. And I realized I could only do that if I branded myself and counted on these people to pay my way and help me take that next step. That felt like dirty and wrong and conformist to me. And I didn't want to do it. It wasn't fun anymore. But maybe that's just me. I don't know. My other issue with this is that he's not super clear. Um, he says, you know, ask your army for help. You'll have to establish strong relationships, improve your worth, helping a more uh, significant level. But he doesn't explain what that looks like. What does that mean? And I think he doesn't because it looks a lot like capitalism. It looks a lot like marketing like we know it. And that's what the blogosphere and promoting yourself, that's what all of that is. But he just moves on to ask how, you know, how to ask for their help. But he doesn't talk about the monetary side of it. Because I think personally, it's a lot like what we already know. You're just doing it out on your own without the infrastructure to help you. Kashia, you took on chapter eight. What did you find there? Personal budgeting gives you control over your own finance. It's important to know what your priorities are and what it is exactly that you want so that you are able to be smart and precise with your budgeting. Taking a direct quote from The Art of Nonconformity, the most important part about unconventional life planning is to be clear on what you want. This essentially goes hand in hand with creating goals so that you are able to know how to get to your destination. How are you supposed to get somewhere if you don't know where you're going? It's important to note that money will not make you happy. Regardless of how much you're making, your enjoyment of money is a highly personal thing. It's how you choose to spend it and what you decide to budget it on that's important. In terms of frugality and how to decide what to spend your money on, I'm going to quote The Art of Nonconformity again because I think that this list is a really good guideline. 1. I happily exchange money for things I truly value. 2. As much as possible, I don't exchange money for things I don't value. 3. All things being equal, I value life experience more than physical possessions. And 4. Investing in others is at least as important as my own long-term savings. Things like travel and concerts and food are all experiences, which are inherently more valuable than buying something like a new hat that you kind of liked. When it comes to material things like clothing, it's good to look more into functionality and necessity. Spending here can be decreased significantly so that you are able to spend it on things that you value more. Spending and values are directly related when you take necessity out of the equation. Some tips that were given are time is not necessarily equated to money, deferred gratification needs to be balanced in order to avoid making decisions that prevent living in the now, the concept of good debt does not exist, increasing your income is better than cutting expenses because it focuses on an abundance behavior rather than a scarcity behavior, and retirement might not be the solution that you want to strive for. To achieve wealth-based financial independence, you should aim to save around 25 times your expected annual expenses. This gives you around a 4% withdrawal rate. To achieve income-based independence, focus more on how to live a l on a less wealth-dependent budget. This means rather than attempting to accumulate wealth, you attempt to accumulate a built-up income. Remember that money is a tool. It can be used to help yourself as well as others. Donating and investing in nonprofits and other forms of charity, obviously, are really valuable things. This is an act of giving back to your community, which is important for obvious reasons. In a way, it's a responsibility. 
When you use your personal privilege to help others obtain freedom and opportunities of their own, you are investing in other people. Giving comes with the art of letting go. Once you choose to give, you are not responsible for what happens with that money. This is an act of selflessness. To sum up this summation, investing in yourself and others is very valuable. Money will not solve all of your problems, and your value should be influencing your spending. A key point is, money in itself is not inherently important, but what you choose to do with your money makes it important. When you are budgeting your personal finances, make sure to take into account your own values and priorities. Investing in yourself and others makes, a more meaningful, makes for a more meaningful way to spend money. Material items hold less value than experiences, and it's important to take that into account. Thank you, Kashia. I think your summation is sound, and Gilabao is definitely outlining very solid fiscal ideas that allow one to move forward responsibly in their endeavors. They do feel a bit conservative to me. It's the same old story, right? Be frugal, save enough to be able to live if you should not have income for a certain amount of time. I suppose I was hoping to hear that one could get by without all of that. Oh, well, I suppose I need to check out a book on, you know, living off the grid and backyard farming for my own version of nonconformity. But really, the one thing about chapter eight that stood out to me that I wanted to challenge was actually advice that I love, but I think goes astray a bit. Gillibau speaks to giving back and that investing in others is how you can use the power of your purse to help others and literally invest funds in those who need it. So first, this is standard altruism, right? Nothing new here. I applaud it, but it's not breaking any molds. But absolutely, give back. I like that he puts that with the part where he gives you standard but solid fiscal advice. Second, Gillibau's advice is to give globally, and this is kind of a theme in his entire book. His volunteering was abroad, his altruism is spent overseas, his, the organizations he offers for his readers to contribute to, also overseas. And while there's nothing wrong with this at all, absolutely not, no, there are plenty of people, we are all on the same globe here, absolutely, we should be looking to many places in which to um, spread our wealth when we can. I still find it hard to take the advice from someone who is promoting self-made entrepreneurship, but is not actually supporting fledgling self-made entrepreneurs. He wants his fans and his army to contribute their hard-earned cash to him and some folks in need far away, but there's not any mention and there's not enough focus for me on his support of others like him that haven't gotten as far down this road as he has. I would think I would be more won over by his advice about altruism if it included some overseas organizations to contribute to, as well as a network or a way or some links to, because there's a lot of information about links that you can go to, that will support people that were like him when he was starting out that are maybe not having as easy a time on the road as he did to success. That's, that's my challenge there with the chapter. But I'll leave Courtney to add one last challenge to the author. A challenge to the author is what we speak of, the ability to embrace nonconformity and take risks on our behalf. Is this willpower or is this privilege? I wonder if the author would be able to say the same thing within the context of our modern day 10 years after The Art of Nonconformity was published. Within his circumstances, he was allowed to take chances because the world hadn't seen many of those. I would challenge that it is much harder to find our generation willing and capable to earn two bachelor's degrees at once, or that a solid business plan is all that it takes, when a bachelor's degree now 
is barely good enough to satisfy the minimum requirements. This author is a white American man, and it is a no-brainer that it was easy for him to take these chances and encourage others to do the same, but the practicality of it all is what lacks, although the intention and inspiration of his words still stands. So lastly, I've been reading hoping to make connections between these chapters of The Art of Nonconformity with a discussion we all recently had in class about reconstructing our narratives as interdisciplinary students. The purpose of this discussion stems from the normative narratives that most students who find themselves earning an interdisciplinary degree tell themselves, myself included. We think we land in interdisciplinary studies because life circumstances get in the way of some other degree pursuit or some challenge gets in the way of us doing the thing we think we're supposed to do, right? That thing that we do to get the industrialized capital, that piece of paper, um, that will make life easier moving forward and and get our foot in the door to establish ourselves in a career that we want and love. Um, and no matter what Gillibau says, that piece of paper helps, and he knows it because he's got it too. But what that discussion did was help reconstruct that narrative for us. Now, listening to me challenge Gillibau in this podcast would likely have you all believe that I'm not at all inspired by his words. But you'd be wrong. The draw to not conform to any one label or structure in order to affect positive change in my community, in my own life, and and still help support my own family is the very thing that pulls me to my interdisciplinary degree. It's also the very thing that, aside from my challenging the author, still hears the inspiration that caused his writing of it in the first place. I still got excited as I started each chapter and then had plenty of things to say, but you know, that's how I do. There really is no one right way. The world is a complex and ever-changing place. I think it's all not so much about the words in the book, but actually that the book exists at all and that we're all willing to read it and talk about it. And yes, even challenge it. It's about communication and support. Because even if each of us is striving to be our own boss, we're still all in this together. Thanks so much for joining us. Until next time, I'm Brianne with This Interdisciplinary Life.